to you, God. We pray that your spirit would move in power, that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, Lord, that we would see uh, the character quality of your word, that it truly is life-giving, it truly is powerful, it truly does impact us and change us from the inside out. And God, we know it's only by your spirit that we can pull from the scriptures what you desire us to pull. So Lord, we pray that you would rid us of any distractions, help us to focus intently on what you want to speak to us as individuals. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, so if you recall, um, we've been through some pretty tragic times here in the life of David as of uh, recent anyways. The last couple chapters, if you remember in Second Samuel chapter 11, that's when David was where uh, he wasn't supposed to be, wrong time, wrong place, when he was supposed to be out to war with his people, instead that he stayed back. Well, that complacency ultimately opened up the door to commit adultery and later on murder. Committed adultery, obviously, with Bathsheba. He had Uriah killed, but not just Uriah. Many of the other servants fighting in that battle died alongside of Uriah. Well, he's not going to just get off that easily, right? God knows exactly what happened. Though he did this thing in secret, God is going to rebuke him publicly and punish him publicly, if you will. And we see that happen in Second Samuel chapter 12, at least the beginning of it. If you recall, God revealed this truth, this dark secret of David's to the prophet Nathan. And Nathan, he confronted David, which led David to this place of confession, which ultimately led to this place of cleansing. The Lord cleansed David through the form of discipline. And this was pretty harsh discipline, right? He took the first son that he had from Bathsheba. Literally, his child died, but that's not the end of it. He told him, God said that there's going to be basically war among your household and there's going to be other consequences from this sin. It wasn't that God was just trying to punish David because he was so angry at him. No, as we mentioned last week, he was hurting him because he loved him and he didn't want David to keep falling back into that lifestyle. And we see this discipline of the Lord was super effective. Why? Because we don't see David commit adultery or murder for the rest of his life here in the scriptures. God knows what he's doing. He's a good father. And as a good father does, he disciplines the sons he and daughters who he loves. As we get into 2 Samuel chapter 13, we're going to see more of these problems that stem from David and the act that he committed back in chapter 11, but not just that, it's also attributed to the type of father David was. And we're going to see this pattern throughout David's life. We've mentioned it already that there are all these issues that David should have dealt with that he never dealt with. And now we're going to see even more of it. And these issues eventually are going to blow up in David's face. The title of this teaching is Undealt with issues undealt with issues see when we don't deal with our issues with friends with family members with co-workers even with acquaintances those problems those issues they don't go away 
As much as we want to pretend they're not there, they are there. And in fact, not only are they there, we see through the word of God and in our real life experiences, those issues get worse and worse until they're finally dealt with. We see a lot of these issues stem from the prophecy that was made here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'll read it for you. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, this is part of the discipline from the Lord in verse 10. God says through the prophet Nathan, Now therefore, for the sword uh, shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. There's going to be division in your house. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. See, God was disciplining David, and we're going to see some of that discipline play itself out in 2 Samuel chapter 13. So we see some of these issues are directly connected with David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, but it's not only those sins. As I mentioned previously, it's the type of father that David was. These issues continue to come up in David's life, and he never deals with them. Not only that, the decisions that he makes throughout his life as a father, these decisions in this text, we're going to see these decisions rub off on his children. They're going to mimic his behavior. And that's another root of some of the issues that come up here in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Well, let's get into the text. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. After this... Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. So we see that Absalom and Tamar are full-on sisters. Their wife was Makah. Or sorry, their mom, David's wife that had those two kids, Absalom and Tamar. But we see Amnon, he's a half-brother of these two. Uh, and his mother was Ahinoam. Now, it's somewhat important to recognize, if you would with me in 2 Samuel chapter 3, how David, or sorry, the family that uh, these two come from, specifically this wife, Makah, with the children Absalom and Tamar. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3, it says, his second, speaking of his sons, Amnon was his first. His second was Chiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Gesher. Okay, that's important because it's going to come up at the end of this text. We'll get there when we get there. But we see the issue that's being pointed out here right off the bat is that Amnon loves Tamar. And he's her brother. So he's a half brother of Tamar and he loves his sister. Now, at this point, we know through the law that this is forbidden. You can't have incestual relationships. We do see incestual relationships in the beginning of Genesis, right? We see it with Abraham and his half, uh, uh, half sister Sarah. We see it a few times with different cousins. But when God instituted the law, he said, no, this isn't the way we should do things. Things. There shouldn't be ancestral relationships. So this is established during this time period. Amnon 
loves his sister, but this is forbidden love. Now, this word loved here, there's many Hebrew words for the word loved. This word is Ahab. That's A-H-E-B. And it means to be attracted to or attached to, to endear or like someone else. This is the type of love that Amnon has for his sister Tamar. But we'll absolutely see as this text plays itself out that this is not agape love. Agape is obviously a Greek word, but this isn't true love. This isn't sincere love. We see what the text is referring to as love will reveal itself to be lust. See, this is where the whole issue starts. It starts with Amnon's lustful desires. This is the first point. Issues arise from fleshly desires. Issues arise from fleshly desires. Let me show you. It's James chapter 4. In James chapter 4, James points to this truth specifically. And he says in verse 1, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Is all the issues that we're going through in this life is because people are given into their flesh. <laughs> They're get, all the problems we see in the world. It's because people are giving into their fleshly desires. They're giving into sin, whether it's the other person giving into sin and it's causing me a problem, or I'm giving into sin and it's causing them a problem. This is where all the wars and all the hate and everything is rooted in. It's rooted in a lack of self-control people just going after things that they want even when those things aren't from the lord this is the problem with amnon he has this battle between the flesh and the spirit going on and he continues to give in to the flesh and the flesh is going to wreak havoc on his life let's look second samuel chapter 13 verse 2 amnon was so distressed over his sister tamar that he became sick for she was a virgin and it was improper for amnon to do anything to her so amnon is so obsessed with his sister that he's getting love sick he's getting sick to his stomach i want her so bad but i can't have her amnon we see is the opposite from being surrendered to the Lord, right? He's not giving the thing to God. We know this is unbiblical, this relationship. He doesn't want the Lord's will. He just wants what he wants. He hasn't told his flesh, no. He's told his flesh, maybe this is a possibility. This could be a possibility. And this possibility is driving him insane. It's physically making him sick with obsession. Now, it says she was a virgin. This word virgin in the Hebrew is betula, okay, B-E-T-U-L-A-H. The phrase means that she was a virgin that was sexually mature. She was a virgin that was of the age to get married, okay? So she wasn't just a little girl. She's of age, which comes up later in the text. 
So not only is she a virgin, but she's Amnon's sister. So it says it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. So it's not improper because she's too young or isn't sexually immature. It's improper. Why? Because it's his sister, right? We don't need to go any further into that. I think we all understand that. Second Samuel chapter 13, verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. Now Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, why are, uh, why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonabad, Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see, uh, may see it and eat it from her hand. Now, we're introduced to this guy, Jonadab, okay? And we'll see him later on in the text. He's actually the cousin of Amnon. Shemiah is the brother of David. So he's not just his friend, he's actually his cousin. And instead of correcting Amnon and going, well, God's word says you can't have a relationship with your sister, he does it. He gives into it. He actually encourages him to set himself up to be in a scenario where he can engage in a sexual act with his sister. This is bad company. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, it says, bad company corrupts good morals. Who we surround ourselves with will rub off on us. It doesn't matter how spiritual we think we are. If we put ourselves in a scenario where we're inviting um uh, uh, unbiblical counsel into our life and we're surrounding ourselves with people that aren't living by the word, guess where we're going to be in just a matter of time? People not living by the word. Instead of Jonadab correcting his brother or his cousin and pointing him in the truth, he influences him and he actually comes up with a scheme to make this happen. Look what it says here in verse 4. Amnon, so deceived, he says, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. It's my brother Absalom's sister. He's so deceived by lust. He's trying to look at this through a lens that is acceptable. He's trying to justify his sin. Well, she's not my full sister, so maybe it's okay. Later on, he will call out to her as his sister. But as we see here in the text, he's putting it on. Oh, it's Absalom's sister. This is what lust can do. Lust can lead us to this place that we're seeing things through deceptive eyes. This is also your sister, Amnon. So Jonadab, he tells him, hey, why don't you just lie down on your bread, uh, bed and pretend to be ill? Again, Instead of this cousin being a good cousin, uh, a wise cousin, uh, a biblically sound cousin, and encouraging him to do what's right, he just gives in and gives him the opportunity and the mindset and the whole plan to do what's wrong. 
We got to be so careful about the people that we surround ourselves with. We got to be so careful about the friends that just encourage us to do what we want to do. If your friends are just always encouraging you to do what you want to do and they'll never correct you, then get rid of those friends. If you have, if you don't have friends that aren't willing to correct you and say, Hey, what you're doing is wrong. This is the wrong way to look at this. You need friends like that. We all need friends like that. In fact, the Bible says it like this. It's Proverbs chapter 27. In Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5, it says, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Meaning, your real friends aren't afraid to hurt you. Your real friends aren't afraid to speak the truth in your life when you're going the wrong way, when you're going down the wrong path. If you're surrounding yourself with people that just tell you what you want to hear, then they're not your friends. They're concerned with man-pleasing. They're concerned with you liking them instead of them loving you and giving you the truth that you need to have to walk in the way of the Lord. Real friends will tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. Jonadab, he's not a real friend. The text continues, 2 Samuel chapter 13. As Jonadab devises this plan, picking it up in verse 6. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And then the king came to see him. Amnon said to the king, please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar saying, now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. So Amnon, he follows along with the plan. He pretends. He acts deceitfully. And then because he recognizes he can't do this thing publicly, he sends everybody out in the room. He creates an environment so that he can live in darkness. If there are things that you're doing in the dark that you're not willing to do in the light, then that may be a problem, okay? There are certain things, obviously, going to the bathroom, you only want to do that in the dark, right? But I'm talking about sin specifically. When there are things that you go, I need to make sure nobody sees me doing this thing because you're in fear of how they might look at you or you're in fear that eh, maybe this is, is not according to the word of God, then that's a huge red flag. If you find yourself constantly hiding from account If you find yourself constantly trying to create environments of darkness, huge red flags. This is the type of person Amnon was. He wanted to be in darkness and he made it happen. So they all went out from him, it says. And then in verse 10, then Amnon said to Tamar, 
Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon and her brother in the bedroom. Now, when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, uh, no, my brother, do not force me for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Let's break this down a little bit. We see, obviously, the plan is working. The people are gone. Now he's just alone with his sister, so he tries to force himself on her. He tries to take advantage of her. He, he pleads. She pleads. No, no, no. This isn't right. This is a foolish decision. But Amnon has a mindset. And his mindset is, I'm going to get what I want. And I don't care what it costs anyone else. Where do you think Amnon learned this from? Did we not see David do something very similar in 2 Samuel chapter 11? See, the sins of David, they rubbed off on Amnon. David became a man that he took whatever, whatever he wanted despite the cost. Now his son is doing the same thing. Now, it's not that Amnon is technically inheriting the sins of the father, but the sins of the father are rubbing off on the son. And that's a reality for every parent that the things we do, what do we know? Our kids are always watching, even Jude at such a young age. Like he is just locked in on me all the time. Whatever I'm drinking, whatever I'm eating, he sees all of it. It's like, bro, kind of freaking me out a little bit. It's like a little scary. You're like a little stalker baby. Like leave me alone for a bit. But it's the reality of it. Kids, they constantly watch their parents. They constantly mimic what they're doing for good and for worse. Either way, it's such a charge for us to recognize not just what I'm doing, but how it's affecting him. What is he seeing? What's he going to grow up seeing? See, David, when he made his fleshly decisions... I guarantee you, he wasn't considering all of this. But now we see those fleshly decisions. Not only is there that prophetic judgment, but these sins obviously rubbed off on his children. Amnon became a man that takes whatever he wants. Now, Tamar, she tries to warn him, don't do this disgraceful thing. She says, you'll be like one of the fools in Israel. That word fool is the word word Nabal. Uh, You remember Nabal. The husband of Abigail that made that foolish decision to not provide uh, for David and all those members of his army, those 600 that were protecting the sheep. That's that word Nabal. This is the same word being used here. This isn't just like a fool in the sense of what we think about it. Like, man, you made a foolish decision. This is this is like a label of disgust. This word is often connected to things like sexual immorality and perversion and other things of that nature. This is like way more insulting than it is nowadays calling someone a fool. And she says, you don't want to be a pervert. You don't want to be one of these sexual immoral people. You don't want to be a fool in Israel. She's trying to warn him. And so is God. God is using Tamar 
to throw the red flag up, to throw the warning sign up. See, this is Amnon's way of escape. There's a chance to go back from this at this point. But after this, there's no chance to come back from it. The Bible promises us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that God is faithful to always make a, a way of escape for us. Any temptation that comes our way, God will send a way of escape, but we got to be open to it. we got to be willing to walk through it. God sent the way of escape for Amnon, but he wouldn't listen. He closed his ears. And then she says, with one last warning, the end of verse 13, please speak to the king for he will not withhold me from you. David at this point was a man that gave his sons whatever they wanted. And Tamar knew this, even this, even though this was against the law, she believed that David would have had no problem with it. He would have, he would have given Tamar to be the wife of Amnon. Even though she doesn't want to do this, if he's going to go through with this, she wants him to do it the right way or at least the best way possible. But it doesn't work. Look at what happened. Second Samuel chapter 13. Verse 14. However, he would not heed her voice and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Despite the warnings. Amnon doesn't listen and he commits this horrendous act. Not only does he sleep with his sister, but he practices sexual immorality because he has premarital sex. And on top of it, he commits rape. So he is committing multiple sins on this level. It would have been one thing if he married his sister. Okay, that would have been weird. Wouldn't have been okay. But he just added to all of that. Now you have the rape and the premarital sex and all these different things. And it all came from giving in to this fleshly desire. He was blinded by it. But I'm willing to bet that this wasn't the first time that Amnon gave in to a fleshly desire. I, I, I almost guarantee you that Amnon wasn't the most righteous man in the land before this. Something like this doesn't just happen out of the blue. It starts with the little things. It starts with the little compromises. It starts with the giving into the flesh on the small scale until the flesh robs us of everything on the larger scale. And that's exactly what will happen when we give into the flesh with the little things. Oh, come on. Don't make a big deal. Giving it a flesh a little bit isn't bad. I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches and what I've seen in my life, in real life, and even in my life personally. I just give in a little bit. Give in a little bit more. Give in a little bit more. Give in a little bit more. We got to remember the flesh is out to destroy us. The more we give them, the more ammo we give them to bring forth destruction into our lives. See this act? That Amnon commits is going to lead to his death. Literally, it's going to lead to his death. I guarantee you when it started with these lustful thoughts, he wasn't thinking these lustful thoughts are going to lead to my death, right? Just like you might be thinking right now, the little, the, the little ways I give into lust, it's not going to do it much damage. They're just little sins. They're the baby ones. It's not a big, they're just immoral thoughts. It's just bad words. It's just whatever his lustful thoughts led to his death. 
It actually happened because he didn't address them when they were just thoughts. Those thoughts turned to actions and he had to face the consequences of his actions. Second Samuel chapter 13, verse 15. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. Wow. If things couldn't get worse, it just got much worse. You think you want something so bad until you have it. And then you realize, I hate this. Why? Because God wasn't in it. I recognize I made a mistake. I gave into my flesh. And though I wanted this thing so bad, I was determined to do whatever it takes to make this thing happen. Now that I have it, I realize it wasn't from the Lord. God didn't want me to have this thing because it wasn't love. It was actually lust. And because I gave into my lust, I made a decision that I can't go back from now. And now Amnon, he hates his sister. He absolutely hates her. And part of it, I believe, is self-hatred because he realizes the wrong that he did. He made many mistakes with this. His sister, the sexual immorality, the rape, and now the hatred. And he kicks her out of the house. This act obviously proves that the love that he had for her was not love at all. It was actually lust. The Bible talks a lot about lust and the lust of the flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives us an example of the battle between the lust of the flesh and the power of the Spirit. And he says this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So if we're walking in the Spirit, we're not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. So if we're filling the lust of the flesh, we're not walking in the Spirit. Okay, those two things go hand in hand. Because he says in verse 17, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. The flesh is trying to manipulate us to do one thing, trying to lead us to do one thing. And the Spirit's obviously in a battle with the flesh, trying to lead us to do another thing. Now, sometimes the Spirit is trying to lead us to do something that we don't really want to do. But when we do it, we recognize, man, I really did want to do that because that was from the Lord. You ever have it in the morning? Sometimes you wake up, you don't feel like praying. You don't feel like reading. Maybe tonight you didn't feel like coming to church. And then you come to church and what happens? Man, I'm glad I went, right? I'm glad I went. I never was like, man, I regretted going to church, right? I regretted reading my Bible. I didn't, maybe didn't want to do it at the time, but when I gave into the flesh and submitted to the, or sorry, gave into the spirit and submitted to the spirit, then I recognized, but even though maybe I didn't want to do that right then, I'm glad I did it now. The, it's the opposite with the flesh. The flesh says, you want this so bad. You want it. You want it. You want it. Go get it. Go get it. Go get it. And then you get it. And what? I hate myself for doing that. Why did I do it? I gave in the flesh, convinced me that I wanted this thing, but I recognized once I have it, I don't want it anymore. I hate this thing. For me, it was many things. It was heroin. It was partying. 
It was seeing how many girls I could rack up. And I thought I loved those things. I love this lifestyle. It's so fun. But every single night before I'd go to bed, I would want to kill myself. I wanted to die. And I didn't understand this concept of the flesh and the spirit. Nobody ever shared the Bible with me. But that's what was happening. My flesh was convincing me, you want this, you want this, you want this, you want want this. Until I had it and I realized I hate this. I hate this. I want nothing to do with this. Next day I wake up, you want this, you want this, you want this, you want this. All over again. This is the reality of the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Spirit sometimes tells us to do things that we don't want to do, only later to realize that we did want to do those things. And the flesh tells us to do things that we think we want to do, and later we realize we never wanted to do those things. It's important that we're listening and recognizing when the flesh is leading and when the spirit is leading. So he sends her out. He says, arise, be gone. He got what he wanted and he disregarded her. Similar to what David did with Bathsheba. Got what he wanted. He wasn't planning on marrying her, right? He sent her home. Oh, just go home. I got what I wanted. It's a done deal. Again, we see the sins of David rubbing off on Amnon. Now, this is so crucial, especially for the men in our church right now. How you treat your wives, how you treat your moms, how you treat your daughters, how you treat the women in your life will affect your children. Okay, specifically, how you treat your wife and your mother will affect your daughter. Okay, if if daughters grow up thinking that they're an object which that's kind of the way david was and how he raised his kids not probably what he taught but how he taught with his actions and how he led but when daughters learn to be objectified they look at themselves as an object and when sons learn from their fathers to objectify women, that's how they say women. They see them as an object. This is how David treated women, okay? I'm sure there were some nice things that he did to his multiple wives. But all of his wives, racking them up because this is something that I want. They're an object to please my flesh. That's how David viewed these things, uh, these women. And that's exactly how uh, what rubbed off on Amnon. The text continues. Second Samuel chapter 13, verse 16. So she said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. He's adding on to it, right? He's going to send her away. Now, biblically, we see uh, he was obligated to marry her at this point. It's Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22 Uh, Verses 28 and 29. I'll read it for you. It says this. uh, If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin. Who is not betrothed. And he seizes her. And lies with her. And they are found out. Then the man who lay with her. Shall give to the young woman's father. Fifty shekels of silver. And he shall be his wife. Because he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her. All his days. So he was obligated to marry her. And now on top of it, he's kicking her out of the house. 
this is going to be big problems for tomorrow. Why? Because now she's not a virgin. It's going to be very difficult for her to get married. Okay, most of the time, you wouldn't marry someone who wasn't a virgin. In fact, part of the wedding ceremony, you'd basically have a seven-day feast. The couple would go into the bedroom. They'd consummate the marriage. And one of the first things that the groom was supposed to do is come out. This is kind of gross, right? But with a bloody sheet to prove that she was a virgin, okay? Because if he found out that she wasn't a virgin, then he could annul the wedding right off the bat. So this is bad news for tomorrow. Tomorrow. She may never get married. We don't see, I looked into it, we don't see Tamar ever get married after this. We don't see her have children. So uh, Amnon, he didn't just rob her of her virginity, but he likely robbed her of the opportunity to have a husband and to have children. All her hopes and dreams, her wedding that she looked forward to, and since she was a girl, all that stuff ruined. He robbed her of almost everything. The text continues. Second Samuel chapter 13 Verse 17, then he called his servant who attended him and said, here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. Now she had on a robe of many colors for the king's virgin daughters were such uh, wore such apparel and his servant put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. So she has this robe of many colors, which marked her as a virgin. Uh, this robe, when you look at the original uh, Hebrew, it's the same thing um, with uh, Joseph in his robe of many colors. It, it really means a, a robe of long sleeves, actually. Um, it could have had various colors, but that's not what the actual Hebrew is. So this was a, a robe that, that would cover her, her arms and her legs. And it was a sign, a symbol that they were someone special. Okay, now she is that special person anymore because she's no longer a virgin so she tears her robe she runs away she's crying bitterly Amnon he crushed her spirit he, he absolutely crushed her he did so much devastation to her the text continues in verse 20 <clears throat> and Absalom her brother said to her has Amnon your brother been with you but now, hold your peace, my sister. Here is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Absalom picked up on it. She tore her garment. She put on the ashes. This was a traditional sign of mourning. He knows something bad has happened. But Amnon, he, or Absalom, he's been watching Amnon. He recognizes this lust that Amnon has for Tamar. So he guesses right off the bat. Tamar doesn't even have to tell him. Amnon did it, didn't he? He finally went through with it. So Absalom, trying to be a good brother, he takes her in. He lets her dwell in his house. Now it's interesting. We see that Tamar didn't run to her father. Why? Because I think Absalom was more of a father to Tamar than David was. Maybe she didn't think David would really give her the protection that Absalom could offer to her. We see David will get upset. It's right here in the next verse. It's verse 21. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. King David was rightfully angry. But guess what? King David was only angry. His anger wasn't attached to emotion, meaning, or anger wasn't attached to action. He did nothing with his anger. 
Anger by itself, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't solve any problems. Now, we have to have a clear biblical understanding of anger. Anger in and of itself is not a sin, okay? It's not a sin to just be angry. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, it says, Be angry and do not sin. It's not a sin just to be angry. It's what we do with the anger. It's how we direct the anger. Now, if your anger is connected to lack of control and you start lashing out and it leads you to, uh, to, to yelling and cursing and murdering and all these, yeah, then obviously that's a sin. But the emotion in and of itself is not a sin. It's what we do with the anger. Jesus got angry. Jesus got angry. When? A few times. A couple times he cleansed the temple. You remember that? It's this righteous indignation. Jesus wasn't sinning by being angry. His anger was directed. His anger was completely under his control. He didn't do anything in that temple that he regretted later. He didn't say anything in that temple that he regretted later. Even driving them out with the whips and flipping over the tables. None of that. He, he was in control the whole time. Here's the reality. It's okay to be anger, angry. But our anger has to be directed appropriately. Specifically, we should get angry at sin. Our anger should be directed towards sin. And our anger should motivate us. Because there's power in anger, right? That's why some people, like, they feed off the anger all the time. They're just angry people. I'm not condoning that. But there's a reality. When I get angry, I got energy, right? I'm like, okay, something's happening. I'm doing something right now. Hopefully nothing I regret, right? But God can use that anger. And he can use that passion. And he wants us to get angry at sin. The, ang- the, the sin in ourselves and the sin in other people. He doesn't want us to just be complacent and go, eh, accept it, you know, sinner, sinner, whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah, there's grace and love and mercy and all these different things. But the Bible teaches through Jesus cleansing the temple that we're supposed to get angry at sin. David is angry at sin. But his anger is just an emotion. It's not attached to action. Look what happens. Second Samuel chapter 13, verse 22. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Absalom's anger towards Amnon ultimately uh, built up into hatred. This is why the Bible says, this is point number two, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. That too is Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26. says don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Be angry and do not sin. But don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Why? Because prolonged wrath turns to bitterness. In bitterness it spreads. In bitterness it doesn't just destroy us from the inside out. It destroys the people around us. Let me show you. It's Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 15, he says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. Your bitterness can defile many. It's got to be dealt with. 
If it's not dealt with, it grows and it divides the family. It divides the family of blood. It also divides the family of God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, that's what that whole text is about. Being unified in Christ. That's why he says, deal with your issues. Because if you don't deal with your issues, then you're giving place for the devil, which we'll talk about in a second. And the devil, he's out to steal, to kill, and destroy. He's out to divide the church. So you're not dealing with your problems. You're giving place to the devil. When we don't deal with our issues, they get worse. Whether it's a friend or a family member or a spouse, if I don't deal with an issue with an individual, the problem doesn't go away. What actually happens is I start building on that problem. Now, now they did this thing. And now they did this thing. Now it's just that. Now it's this thing. And now it's this thing and this thing and this thing. And it builds up and builds up and builds up until all of a sudden it just explodes out, right? And now I've built this case against this individual where I'm holding the last five years of their life against them. We're not called to build cases against each other. We're called to confront and address our brothers and sisters when they're in sin. We're morally obligated to do that. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, uh, just before uh, he talks about uh, bitterness, uh, bitterness uh, spreading and defiling many, he said we're called to pursue peace and reconciliation so that doesn't happen. That's how we prevent it. We pursue peace and reconciliation so that the bitterness doesn't spread and destroy us and destroy the people around us. How do we pursue peace and reconciliation? A lot of times it comes through conversations. Jesus teaches us how to do it in Matthew chapter 18, right? If your brother sins against him, you have a moral obligation to confront them, not let it go. It's on you. He doesn't say the one that sinned need to go apologize. That's not what he says. If someone sinned against you, you have to go talk to them. Why? Because sometimes they don't realize what they did. They, they don't realize how they wronged you. So it's your obligation as the victim, if you will, to go talk to that person and say, hey, um, this is what you did, or this is what you said, and this is how I took it, and 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 it hurt. It, it hurt me, uh, and and I want to deal with the issue. I want to squash it. If we don't do that, and we have issues with our brothers and si- uh, sisters in the body of Christ, undealt issues. That's a sin. Me not dealing with my issues that I have with individuals, that's a sin in and of itself. So you might say, well, they wronged me, and I'm not going to talk to them until they apologize. That's a sin. You didn't confront them. You didn't talk to them. For all they know, they don't even know how they hurt you. We have a moral obligation to confront our brothers and sisters in sin. Why? Once again, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, as he's talking about not letting the sun go down on your wrath, He says, because it gives place to the devil. Exactly what I was mentioning. By me not confronting my issues with an individual, I'm giving room for the devil to get in there and cause so much more damage. He loves when we don't deal with our issues. He absolutely loves it. I'm going to turn this little argument into a split in the church. Yeah, I'm going to turn this little argument to somebody walking away from the Lord. That's what the enemy does. He expounds upon it. He adds to it. He makes it worse and worse and worse until what? Until we deal with it or until it explodes in our face. If we have undealt with issues, especially with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we got to deal with them. They will not go 
away. And it's sad. I know for a fact um, in our church and many ministries that I've been a part of, I know people that have walked away from the church, walked away from the ministry because they wouldn't follow Matthew 18, because they wouldn't confront their brother and sister and sin. And the other person didn't even know what happened. It's so messed up. And we're given place to the devil when we don't address it. The text continues, 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 23. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Now, uh, during the season of sheep shearing, all right, taking their wool, you had a huge festival. There were parties, there was drunkenness, there was a lot of stuff going on, but this was a big cultural deal. So this is what Absalom is going to use to get back at Amnon. So he invites all the king's sons, or at least he will be in a minute. But I want to point out another thing here in verse 23. It says, after two full years. So two full years of the sun going down on your wrath again and again and again and again after two years, what do you think is going to happen? That bitterness is going to get heavy, right? It's going to raise up. It's going to become destructive. Two years without dealing with your bitterness and it is going to destroy you even more in the people around you. He also had two years to come up with a plan. How am I going to avenge my sister? How am I going to be get back Amnon for what he did to her. So that's where this plan comes in. Let's look at it. Verse 24. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. So Absalom goes to the king, Hey, uh, I want you to come with me to this party. And the king says, No. We don't know why David said no. Maybe he was given into complacency. I don't know for sure. We have no idea. Uh, but if he had gone, things probably would have turned out differently. Look what happened. Second Samuel chapter 12, or sorry, 13, verse 26. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom likely probably knew that David wasn't going to go for whatever reason. Maybe he's invited him to something like this before. Wasn't David's thing. We don't know for sure, but Absalom gets what he wants. And regardless of all the king's sons, he's using that as a decoy because he doesn't want to just invite one of the king's sons. So he gets Amnon and the rest of them to go. Here's where the plan unfolds in verse 28. Now Absalom had commanded his servants saying, watch now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each one got on his mule and fled. So he commands his servants to kill uh, So Absalom commands his servants to kill Amnon, and they actually follow through with this. See, Absalom's undealt with anger and bitterness actually led to murder. It's point number three. These last couple points are real quick. Undealt with issues will only get worse. Undealt with issues will only get worse. 
That's why Jesus, in speaking of anger, he says this in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 22, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. The Lord's point is primarily this. He's talking about exceeding righteousness. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes of the Pharisees. What he's getting at is the heart. Okay, before it comes into action, you got to address the heart of it. Murder doesn't start with murder. Okay, nobody just walks along the street one day and says, I'm just going to kill this person. It starts with anger. That anger builds up to bitterness and it leads to murder. Why? Because problems don't go away unless they're dealt with. They have to be dealt with or else they'll grow and they'll get worse. Maybe your undealt with issues won't lead to murder. I certainly hope not. But they absolutely will get worse. And I promise you, as long as you keep uh, resisting dealing with them and reconciling them, the issues that you have with individuals, the enemy is going to wreak more and more havoc in your life. He's going to cause more bitterness uh, in you towards other people, not even the person that you have the primary problem with. And he's going to bring some form of destruction. Might not lead to murder, but it will lead to something. So Absalom, because he's upset with Amnon, because he hates him, he's going to get rid of him. He's got a problem with the person, he gets rid of him. Where do you think he learned that from? Isn't that what David did with Uriah? I got a problem with this guy. Can't get him to sleep with his wife. So I'm just going to get rid of him. See, Absalom and Amnon are picking up these things from their father. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 30. This last section will finish pretty quickly. And it came to pass, while they were on the way, that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. So this is a false report. He didn't kill all the king's sons. That wasn't the point. He killed one of the king's sons. So we see some gossip going on, right? That's exactly what happens when we don't deal with our issues. We're given place to the enemy to cause division, and sometimes he does that through the form of gossip. Instead of adding to the problem with gossip, we got to deal with the problem. Sometimes the issues that we hear about aren't as serious as what we heard. Even though this is tragic, a man dies but it's certainly not as bad as all the king's sons dying. Second Samuel chapter 13, verse 32. Then Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister to mark. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king take the thing to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead. From only Amnon, only Amnon is dead. So it's Jonadab. That name sound familiar? All right, I only know one. He's the one that convinced uh, Amnon to rape 
his sister to begin with, but now he's coming basically as a, 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 a truthful messenger trying to get in on David's good side. But the reality is still the reality, and Amnon, one of David's sons, is dead. Imagine the guilt that David's feeling right now. You don't think that he's not thinking about what Nathan said to him? The sword's not going to depart from your house? That prophecy that we talked about in the last passage? David knows that God's discipline towards him, it didn't end with one son dying. Remember, he said, uh, the, the, the guy should pay fourfold as many lamb that he stole. He's going to have four sons killed because of this specific act that he committed against Bathsheba and Uriah. See, David had faced consequences for his sins, but sometimes the consequences that we face for our sins are delayed. Sometimes we face consequences for sins in the present, uh, for things that we did in the past. Sometimes the discipline of the Lord is delayed. And there can be things that we're walking through right now that we go, why is this happening? And it could be something that we did way down the way back when. You know, the Lord is faithful to discipline those that he loves. And we can look at that and say, that's a little harsh, God. Why would you do that? But once again, often the Lord has a series of acts of discipline in our life. Why? So we don't forget what we did. We don't forget the error of our ways so that we don't fall back into that same thing because he's a perfect father and he knows the discipline that each and every one of us need. And we might think that was too harsh. The punishment is greater than the crime. But God's not just disciplining us for the crime. He's trying to discipline us so we don't commit graver crimes, more severe crimes, crimes that cause more destruction. This is what we see here with David. Second Samuel chapter 13 Verse 34, then Absalom fled and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, look, the king's sons are coming as your servant said, so it is. So it was as soon as he had finished speaking that the king's sons indeed came and they lifted up their voice and wept. All the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. Absalom he flees. Why? He knows the consequences for murder is capital punishment. But what we see Absalom doing is he's running away from his problems. This is point number four. Quick one. Don't want to run away from your problems, right? This is an obvious one, but sometimes we need to be reminded. Don't run away from your problems. <clears throat> your problems will follow you wherever you go. Sometimes we can blame it on our circumstance. Sometimes we can blame it on our environment or our location or the people that we're around. And there are certain times that we need to separate ourselves from certain people. But when you bounce around from place to place to place, your problems are going to follow you. If you're in that mentality that I'm running away from my problems. Jonah did it, right? I don't want to speak to Nineveh. I hate those guys. What happened? His problems followed him. His problems followed him out to the sea through a storm. And that storm almost killed many people. So other people suffered because Jonah was bringing his problems with him. A new location doesn't change the issues of our heart. We still have to deal with the issues of our heart. Absalom, by fleeing, is just making things worse for himself. Second Samuel chapter 13 
verse 37. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of uh, Amihud, king of Gesher. So this is his grandfather. He goes to his grandfather's house. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Gesher and was there three years. Okay, Two years of bitterness, now three years of running away from his problems. None of his stuff is dealt with. Then verse 39, and King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. So for three long years, David longed to reconcile with his son, but guess what? He didn't do it. He didn't take one step of faith to make that happen. Fifth and final point, don't just desire to reconcile, reconcile. Don't just desire to reconcile, reconcile. Our desire to do the right thing isn't doing the right thing. It's just a desire to do the right thing. I have to have the desire to do the right thing. And then I got to follow through and actually do the right thing. So maybe there's someone in your life that you know you're supposed to make amends with. You know you're supposed to reconcile. You know you're supposed to confront them and say, hey, you wronged me. But the desire isn't going to solve the problem. A desire to reconcile isn't reconciliation. And we're called to reconcile. In fact... Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, 2 Corinthians 5, 18, it says he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. We're called to reconcile people to God and reconcile people to each other and ourselves. We're given the ministry of reconciliation. Sometimes we can say, uh, you know, I really need to talk to that person. I really need to deal with that issue. And then what happens? Three years go by and you never dealt with it. We can't just keep talking about how we're going to deal with our issues with other people. We actually have to deal with them. All the longing of David's heart is not going to solve the problem. And because he doesn't deal with his issue, it's going to lead to a civil war. This problem won't go away. It's going to blow up in his face. You see, just some of the disasters that plagued the family of David... And much of it was from his sin of adultery and murder, but also in the way that he led his family and being a bad example, and specifically his son, sons picking up on that, objectifying women, taking what they wanted, and Tamar feeling like an object. David wrongfully assumed that the problems that he had with his family were just going to fix themselves. They're, they're just going to, to go away. It's not really a problem as long as we don't talk about it. As long as we keep brushing it under the rung, it's going to take care of itself. But that is a lie from the enemy. The more we give in to that lie, that problems will just solve themselves the more division we're inviting in the church body, the more division we're inviting in not just the family of God, but also the family of blood. For many of us, it might not be too late to deal with some specific issues, but there will be one day when it is. We have a moral obligation to reconcile. Now I'll end with this. There's a reality that certain relationships we should not reconcile. Okay, There are certain relationships that are dangerous for us to get involved. I'm not going to go reach out to all the ex-girlfriends that I had and tell them, okay, I wrong. I, we need to like reconcile. No, I'm not going to do that. That would be wrong of me. There's certain relationships that we simply shouldn't reconcile because it can invite more danger and destruction into our lives. So with the reconciliation, there has to be prayer being led by the spirit and asking the lord god is this something that you want to do 
And I believe that the Lord will convict us and tell us, yeah, you need to, you need to reconcile with this specific person. You need to deal with the specific issues. And especially if those issues are with people that are part of the family of God. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you, God, for the text and the challenges, Lord, to, to, to remember how problems don't go away if they're not dealt with. Uh, and, and how we can have problems in our family. We can have problems with our friends. We can have problems at our jobs. We can have problems with, uh, with the family of God, uh, Lord. And, and you call us, uh, to reconcile. You've given us the ministry of reconciliation, God. So I pray, uh, that we wouldn't just, um, think the problems will go away, that we would actually deal with them, that you would lead us in how to deal with those things, that we would do it by the book, God, that we would, um, make amends where we need to make amends, Lord, that we would confront people that, that we need to confront, God, and we would do it all for your glory. Um, and what might be a hard conversation, we would recognize uh, because we do it your way, it would bear much fruit and would actually produce more unity among the body of Christ. You call us uh, to, to address things, to bring more unity, not to divide us, God. So continue to bless this church, bless us, bless everyone that came tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.